Hi, and welcome to another episode of Switchcast, a podcast delving into the world of film brought to you by the team at Switch. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Charlie David Page. I'm Jess Fenton. I'm Daniel Lamon. And I'm Chris Edwards. It's Thursday the 3rd of May 2018. On this week's show, we have all the highlights from CinemaCon, from sneak peeks of our most anticipated films to Disney's takeover of 20th Century Fox. Rip. And as always, all our reviews and giveaways. Let's get straight into it with Breath. Jake got this Aussie drama and filed this review for us. Breath is the directorial debut of Australian actor Simon Baker, who shot to fame in Hollywood as the star of the TV show The Mentalist. Based on author Tim Witten's Miles Franklin award-winning novel, it's a coming-of-age story about two teenage boys, Pikelet, played by Samson Coulter, and Looney, played by Ben Spence. Living in a small timber town near the West Australian coastline, the boys befriend each other one summer while swimming at the river, and go on to dare each other to more extreme exploits. When they ride to the coast on their bikes and see the local lads surfing, they know they've got to give it a try. Before long, they draw the attention of Sando, played by Simon Baker, a mysterious older surfer and adventurer who takes them under his wing and encourages them to try a bigger and more dangerous surf. It's the 70s, and Sando and his depressed American wife Eva, Elizabeth Debicki, are living a hippie lifestyle in a house set in the bush where Eva is also trying to overcome her own personal demons. How does it feel when it's that serious? It's not about the thoughts in your head. It's about surrender. Surrender is what frees you up to be completely in the moment. To commit with your body and your soul. Not a shred of doubt. You're different, Baker. You've got this look. Like you're expecting to lose something. Fear's only natural, mate. People face down fears every day. Daring to try, that's mankind for you. I don't know if I'm feeling it. You're a coward. I thought I brought men above the ordinary. Being scared to have some fun. You should know that by now. Amateur actors who were cast by Baker for their surfing skills, Samson Coulter and particularly Ben Spence, are fantastic as the scruffy coastal teenagers, particularly when you consider they are playing opposite actors like Baker, Debicki, Richard Roxburgh and Rachel Blake. Baker's direction is confident, Water cinematographer Rick Rafici does amazing work in turning Tim Witten's evocative and descriptive writing into visual poetry, and the novel's been adapted with a lot of obvious care. Tim Witten is credited on the screenplay alongside Gerard Lee and Baker. I really love this film. Until I didn't. The major bum note here is the handling of Eva, Sando's surly, troubled but beautiful wife, whose role in the story is to usher Pikelet into manhood. Eva was an extreme skier, but now has a blown knee. Consequently, she's bitter because her husband still gets to do what he loves, and because he's not spending any time with her. Tired of being left alone, she seeks her own gratification in a way that changes Pikelet's life. She is a, capital letters, wounded woman. Casting Tabiki in a predictable, fairly one-dimensional succubus role doesn't sink the film, but when coupled with the fact that Breath also loses the charismatic presence of Baker and Spence at this juncture in the story, the result is that the air is knocked out of the film, pun intended far too long before it reaches its conclusion. Add an extra star if you're a big Tim Winton fan. Otherwise, three stars. So I have not read Breath. I have not read a Tim Winton novel, full stop. But I am actually looking forward to this movie. I think the one thing that's really making me hesitant, though, is just, does Australia know what a female story is? (laughs) Does Australian film remember women at all? 
this is a massive violation as well to to underuse the sensational oh Elizabeth Debicki. Oh yeah. my god! Like, why cast someone like her if you're just going to have her sit there and look wistful and elfish and like just do nothing? It's like, do you know the supreme talent that is standing in front of you that can like outact all of you? You selfish son of a bitch! I mean, come on. <laughs> Whoa. I know. She was in a movie covered head to toe in gold and was magnificent. <laughs> On top of the question of do we does Australian cinema not know that there are such things as female stories, there's also the question of does Australian cinema know there are stories that aren't set on the fucking beach? <laughs> but we're a land girt by sea, Daniel. The, the, the girting. This is makes, this, makes all the stories. This is silent the acknowledgement of the there girting. There's ample girtiness here, yes. It is interesting to consider that most Australian films are we're kind of stuck in this rut in Australian film that we have been for years upon years upon decades upon decades, where really the only kind of Australia that gets represented is coastal or outback or bush or in some way like of country, but it's always white people and their relationship to the land. Certainly on the scale that Breath is receiving in terms of its release. We don't, I mean, there are films that do acknowledge other yeah, experiences of, of country, yes, but yes. they don't have the they don't have the exposure that this film does, like a giant painted mural mm. next to the cinema Nova. And even just looking at the recent actor awards, like over the past few years, you look at the films nominated for best film and it's overwhelmingly male, it's overwhelmingly white, yeah. and it's overwhelmingly like set in the past in some way. Can I bring up something as well? When was the last time you saw Tim Winton's name above a film title and went, oh, <laughs> God, yes, because I loved his last adaptation Blah, 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 blah. Like, what is it? What is Australians' um, obsession with adapting Tim Winton novels? I mean, I, I, I don't understand. I, then, are they successful? I don't remember them. It's because Tim Winton, he, he captures the voice of Australia. Tim Winton, <laughs> I haven't thought about Dad since I read that Tim Winton novel and I was looking out over the smokestacks of, of the town and I realised... <laughs> It was the first time I'd been back in this town since Dad. Stop it. It's too good. Stop it. It's really freaking me out. On a serious <laughs> note, there is something that is very problematic with the idea of stories like this and stories like Tim Winton writes being constantly funded by the Australian funding bodies because mm -hmm. these are stories that, although, yeah, they, they tell a specific story about Australia, they're also generally films that... A, Australian audiences actually are totally deterred to go to the cinema by and give Australian cinema a bad name, and B, don't make their money back. So can somebody please explain to me why we keep getting these kind of stories in Australian cinemas? Like, there are so many more interesting things to say about us. Okay, okay, look, as the probably, probably only person here who apparently has read a Tim Winter novel, um, I will just duck in and say um, I haven't read Breath, and actually I've only read one Tim Winter novel, but, I mean, I've read his greatest novel and probably like i've read cloud street and honestly cloud street may be the best book ever written in this country but um i think a lot of that has to do with the prestige of him as opposed to necessarily his actual work because i've spoken to quite a few people not just since i read cloud street but uh, around the release of this film and a lot of the acknowledgement is what people say yeah well it's not it's just there like it's, he, he just kind of typifies a comfortable view of what australia thinks that it should be um 
know, we've talked on this podcast before about the idea that films that represent Australia as in uh, as it is are not necessarily films that are embraced, while films that present a mythologized version of a white Australia are things that people are more comfortable with. And I think Tim Winton falls a little bit into that. I mean, Cloud Three doesn't fall into that, but I think a lot of his work since then, from what I've speaking to other speaking to other people, does fall into that a bit. So I guess it just makes us comfortable. Well, you can check out Jake's full review at maketheswitch.com.au and Breath is in cinemas now. Also out today is The Gateway. Physicist and researcher Jane Chandler, Jacqueline McKenzie, is happily married to writer Matt, Miles Pollard. They have two kids, Jake and Samantha. Jane has her own lab and together with her assistant, they experiment with matter teleportation. Later, tragedy strikes. Matt is killed in a car crash, proving Jane falls to pieces. But a few weeks later comes a ray of hope. Using her revolutionary teleportation machine, Jane finds a way to travel to a parallel world where she finds an alternate version of Matt. But this version of her deceased husband reveals himself to be a very different man. A soldier, he carries a strange, deadly weapon and has a temper that can erupt at any moment. It soon becomes clear that she has made a terrible mistake and now she must find a way to defeat him and save her family. Feels like a dream. I'm going to wake up and you'll be gone. I'm never going to leave you. Promise me. Promise. You've heard of Tegmark's theory. Parallel worlds. We could go across. Okay, taking it to 200. So it seems that our trend on this week's podcast is Australian films because The Gateway is actually a small budget Australian film. This is a completely different film to what Breath is, that's for sure. And sci-fi is something we do so well. (laughs) (laughs) I have seen the trailer for this. I haven't seen the film. But um, to be honest, the trailer actually doesn't look as terrible as you might think for a sci-fi Australian film. So, uh, like, it does hold some promise to me. And uh, the guy behind it, whose name is, uh, he's the director and co-writer, John V. Soto, has worked on, he worked on uh, The Reckoning, would you believe it? I I would, because I've never heard of it. (laughs) Really? Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I don't know. I don't know. Would you believe? Would you believe? (laughs) I would believe. The Reckoning was also a small Aussie film, but it had Luke Hemsworth in it and John LaPaglia, and it had a really good cast, actually. A bit like this one. I mean, Jacqueline McKenzie's not exactly a slouch. She's pretty great. Yeah. So this guy is clearly able to wrangle a decent cast together. So, yeah, you kind of have to hope that the films that he's making are actually kind of interesting. And um, it does have a vaguely interesting premise, and it's kind of different to the normal sci-fi films like watching the trailer it's it's because it's about a woman well it's about it's about a woman yeah it's about a very fucking smart woman which is uh yeah let's say the complete opposite of what we had in breath so wowzers i know revolutionary right this film is a fantasy women can't be scientists (laughs) all right Finally, National Theatre Live's Cat on a Hot Tin Roof hit cinemas on Saturday. Daniel took in this modern adaptation of the theatre classic, so did it give you pause for thought? 
Tennessee Williams's Cat on a Hot Tin Roof is one of the truly great plays of the last century. Set over a hot summer night at the birthday party of Patriarch Big Daddy, played by Cole Meany, we watch as this southern family crumble under the weight of their festering lies, focused around the strained relationship between alcoholic son Brick, played by Jack O'Connell, and his wife Maggie, played by Sienna Miller, desperate to save her marriage and assure her survival. Living with someone you love can be lonelier than living entirely alone if the one that you love doesn't love you. Tom just outran me, Big Daddy. Liquor's one way out, death's the other. You're my son. I'm gonna straighten you out now that I'm straightened out, I'm gonna straighten out you. I feel all the time like a cat on a hot tin roof. Then jump off the roof. It's a pity then that this production from The Young Vic, presented as part of National Theatre Live, never lives up to it. The fault lies entirely with Australian director Benedict Andrews, who strips the play of its humour or tragedy, instead applying layers of banal cleverness and a manufactured sense of danger. So little feels true to the play, from the lazily executed modern setting to the complete absence of the claustrophobic heat integral to this long night of the soul. The cast try their best, with Miller putting in a good effort with the iconic role of Maggie, and Meanie delivering a terrific Big Daddy. But Andrew's lack of clarity leaves the usually dependable O'Connell completely at sea. And worst of all, the production openly refuses to engage with the queer narrative in the play, something very personal to Williams and part of why the play made such an impact in 1955. This is such a woefully inadequate, frustratingly heterosexual production of one of the richest plays in American theatre. It's little wonder from Andrews, though, a director who seems to think himself consistently cleverer than his material. Look at his atrocious film Una from last year, for example. This one left me disappointed, annoyed, and as a lover of Tennessee Williams, pretty offended. Two stars. Ouch. Yeah. So, Daniel, let me ask you this. This is a Tennessee Williams play. So, Tennessee Williams is considered like the be-all and end-all of sort of American playwrights. Yet, this is a production that was directed by an Australian and filled with British actors. Do you think that's a factor here? Um, no, I don't. I'm, I've, the first time I saw Cat in a Hot Tin Roof was at the Melbourne Theatre Company with an entirely Australian cast and Australian director. And I think, I don't think it's a misunderstanding of the culture behind the play. I think it's just a bad take on it, a real a lack of understanding of it. Um, I mean, Sienna Miller at no point, particularly with Sienna Miller and um, Cole Meany, at no point did I sit there and go, "You're British and I don't believe you." They certainly got, um, they got a good grasp of it. It's only really Jack O'Connell that feels really lost. His accent is really inconsistent. He looks really uncomfortable, um, which makes a lot of sense because he spends, I reckon, a good fifth of the play absolutely butt full frontal naked, um, which okay. which is a dramaturgically interesting choice because you go, okay, well, that places Brick in the position of being the most pathetic person on stage, which he is the most pathetic character. But then Benedict Andrews being Benedict Andrews has to throw in some gratuitous female nudity. And the like, it's, yeah, it's, it's not, I don't think it's a culture difference. I think it has a lot to do with just the ego of the director. I really don't like Benedict Andrews in case that hasn't come across. Well, yeah, because a couple of years ago he did Streetcar. Yes, which I did National Theatre Live as well. Which I didn't get to see, but I think Streetcar is a slightly less problematic play for someone as um, tremendously heterosexual and a bit as chauvinist as he is. Um, because it doesn't deal wow. so much with the queer narrative. One of the big turning points in the play is the under- uh, Brick's, Brick's alcoholism is built out of the fact that he 
his best friend has committed suicide about a year or two beforehand. And there's suggestions in the play that maybe there was something a bit more going on between him and his friend oh, Skip. A bit broke back mountain. A little bit. But what's so amazing about what the play did in 1955 is then it doesn't actually, it goes from being really subtle to being very blunt. Mm. And so there's the point, the, the kind of the highlight, and certainly was the highlight of this production because of how great Cole Meany was, was a discussion between Brick and his father about that. Where in most cases there's – and Brick continuously says there's nothing there, was nothing there, there was nothing there. And in most cases you sit there and go, yeah, but I don't believe you. Like there's enough of a suggestion of displacement in the play that suggests that, it's, that he's not telling the truth. While in this production, I believed him. Like, but that's a mm-hmm. problem because then it means well, like, right. you sit there and go, well, why is this narrative in there? Like if Williams has chosen to put this narrative in there, then it needs to be there for a reason. And everything about Benedict Andrews' production did not give a reason for it. The National Theatre Live screening has come with um, interviews as well from members of the crew and the director and the artistic directors of the company and that kind of stuff. And not a single one of them mentioned the fact that Tennessee Williams was a queer writer or that he was that he was gay. And I sat there kind of going, you're talking about this being autobiographical, but that's what's autobiographical about it. Yeah, it was just, it was also just weirdly, there was no chemistry between Sienna Miller and Jack O'Connell. It was trying to be sexy and it wasn't. There was also some fucking weird moments. Like, there's this bit where um, Big Mama, the, the the matriarch of the family, there's this cake sitting in the middle of the stage because why the fuck not? There's a cake in the middle of the stage. <clears throat> and when she finds out that, because the other narrative is that Big Daddy um, has a terminal illness, but nobody knows, he and Big Mama don't know it. So when Big Mama finds out, she instantly throws herself to the floor and starts tearing apart this cake. It was the most pointless, banal action. And I was like, you're doing that because Benedict Andrews told you to do that and because he wants to see a cake thrown across the stage. I didn't know what was happening half the time, like why anyone was doing anything. And then they're naked. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why are you naked? I don't need to see Sienna Miller naked. Like, what's that got to do with the play? Like, come on. <laughs> it's just very, yeah, not great. It's not great. It made me very angry. <laughs> Well, I'm sold. <laughs> yeah, I do have to ask just on that. How is Sienna Miller, my love, my underrated fave? I've been questioning whether she's a good actress for the last decade. I don't oh. know. I've never seen her really get into Jessica. anything. And Maggie is probably Jessica. like like the quintessential. Like women will do bad things Jessica, to get how it dare you. Can she hold it? Before you both start having a rumble over Sienna Miller, I will answer <laughs> Chris's question, which is she does a pretty good job. I mean, the difficulty with Maggie is that because she spends the first act of the play pretty much nonstop monologuing and the southern accent can quite can get quite tiring, it's really tricky to make that work. Um, and she does her best with the vacuum of direction that she's given. There's just, like, he's just not interested in Maggie. He's not interested. I mean, there's a point where he says that, you know, Everything is, it's all brick stories. Like, well, it's all their stories. And she's just a sexual being that wants to get her husband to sleep with her. When it's like, no, there's a lot more to her than that. And Miller tries to dig into it, but she can't quite get there. I'd love to have seen her do it with a better director. Because she is. Like, see, I, I think Sienna Miller is great. And this is one of the great female parts. But, yeah, it just left going. You know, you're just left wondering what the point was. Um, well, you can find my full review at maketheswitch.com.au, which I'm sure will have a lot more complaining in it. And the National Theatre Live production of Cat in a Hot Tin Roof is in cinemas from Saturday. Okay, now let's check out the upcoming films and our trailer wrap. Here's Crazy Rich Asians. 
March. We've been dating for over a year now, and I think it's about time people met my beautiful girlfriend. What about us taking an adventure east? Like Queens? Singapore. Colin's wedding. Don't you want to be my family? I hardly know anything about them. Every time I bring them up, it changes the subject. Maybe his parents are poor and he has to send them money. I'll take a bag and get you checked into first step. I can't afford this. So your family is rich? We're comfortable. That is exactly what a super rich person would say. I want money. 1.2 million. That's what I want. The Nick you're dating is Nick Young? Yeah, you guys know them or something? Hells yeah. They're just the biggest developers in all of Singapore. Damn, Rachel. It's like the Asian bachelor. These people aren't just rich. They're crazy rich. Now you really should have told me that you're like the Prince William of Asia. That's ridiculous. Much more of a Harry. <laughs> Mom, this is Rachel Chu. She just thinks you're some, like, unrefined banana. No, 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 uh, those are your fingers. Yellow on the outside, white on the inside. Do some crazy! I chose to raise a family. For me, it was a privilege. But for you, you may think it's old-fashioned. Don't you want Nick to be happy? I know you're not what Nick needs. She's like trying to play a game of chicken with me, thinking I'm gonna swerve like a chicken. But you can't swerve. You gonna roll up and be like, mock, mock, bitch. Okay, maybe like not as aggressive. Yeah, woo! Token Asian in the house right now. <laughs> um, <clears throat> the first thing I wanted to say is, oh my god, Asians are just like the rest of us. Um, <laughs> this film is fantastic. I like it is based on the insanely popular book, which um, I have not read, but now I want to. But this is this is the film that Asian actors have been screaming about for years and years and years, saying why aren't we represented more on film and now they've taken you know they've taken the romantic comedy and they've cast every single Asian you could possibly imagine including a couple Australians whoop, whoop, and they've and they're just going to absolutely crush it I cannot wait to just watch all the, the dollar signs in people's eyes and all the box office ringing in and this movie looks so funny and fabulous there's even queer representation in it and first time actors like the main guy has come out of nowhere um yeah and it's gonna be great i can't i'm so excited and it's not hard to look at oh my god yeah right i love how much the movie is already objectifying him but i think that's kind of his role in this whole story it's that's like it's clearly um the female lead story and he's just like a plot point so i kind of i kind of approve, approve of that the female lead played by constance Wu, who Oh my god, Ooh, yeah. Thank God. Like she deserves all of the huge opportunities, all of the lead roles. She is fucking fantastic on Fresh Off the Boat. But she's also like she's great in real life as well. Like she's been hugely taken of prisoners about speaking out about sexual harassment in the industry. Her tweets surrounding Casey Affleck's Oscar nomination and win were fucking great. Um, and I'm just really excited and happy to see her get this huge opportunity. Yeah. Not only that, she is, she absolutely won me over in that trailer. Every single frame that she is in mm. is just superb. Like I, I want to watch it for her. It's also just a really great trailer and sells a it's really true. fun film. Like I was just watching it going, I can't wait to see this because it looks like I'm going to have a fucking ball. Like it's what just looks like yeah. a great time. Oh, and the, the colour and the dancing and the so spectacle bright. of it all and the fact that it's set in Asia as well and it's just, it's going to be so good. It just looks, it looks fun. Yeah, and it's actually already begun screening in advance for certain groups and the response online has already been 
rapturous. People are really loving this film already. Yeah, I'm really fucking excited. And it's also just seeing people in a community be able to tell their own stories, which is always a positive. Mm -hmm. Crazy concept. Mm -hmm. Well, Jess, you've got a couple of months still to read the book. Crazy Rich Asians isn't in Australian cinemas until the 30th of August. All right, now let's take a look at Woman Walks Ahead. This was my vision. White soldiers falling from the sky. Custer with his army. They tracked down every chief, killed them all. Except for you. The only battle I ever fought against is insignificance. So live more. That's what I want to do. He looked so magnificent. His weapon did not give him reason to hope. No one here has forgotten or forgiven. At least about the Seventh Cavalry. It's in over. Now sitting both dead. We all think that you and me are planning some kind of uprising. The people need a sign for them to believe in their own strength. They've been angry for a long time. I fear that this return to Dakota is about revenge. You idiots in Washington want to start another war. If we fight, they'll massacre us all. This is what the general wanted all along. And deep down, that's what the bull wants too. Now terrible things have happened here in the past. I'm just here to paint a painting. Yeah, maybe not quite as excited for this um i, um, I was looking forward to it but, and i remember jessica, seeing i know i know my one true love jessica, jessica chastain i seem to have a lot of one true loves um <laughs> but jessica chastain who i fucking love and the things she's doing as a female performer are just fantastic um she's really inspirational this film does look a little bit white saviory i'm not quite sure why the story of this incredibly famous and influential Native American man needed to be framed through the eyes of a white woman. Yeah, I felt not dissimilar. I mean, it's one of those weird things where you go, well, it's a female story, so that's a positive. It's a female story being told by a female artist, which is a positive. Hmm. But then it's also the thing of, yeah, this is a a story about an Indigenous people told through the eyes of a non-Indigenous person. Yeah, it's, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, I mean, the trailer looked intriguing and I was kind of intrigued by it. And I mean, it's Jessica Chastain and, you know, it's Sam Rockwell not in that Billboards movie, um, which is always a positive. (laughs) Although it is lovely to see his credit card on the trailer as Academy Award winner, Sam Rockwell. We're just trying to pretend. It happened, people, move on. It happened. Just get on. Um, um, But yeah, I found similar towards the end. I was like, uh. Uh, is this is this this I feel like I've seen this before and I didn't like it last time you did this and I don't think I'm gonna like it now. Yeah, I don't know. It just felt it was a bit uncomfortable. So this may possibly be the first trailer we've discussed on this podcast from A24 we haven't all unanimously loved. Oh, oh. oh. shocking. Wow <laughs> dear. Okay, they're allowed one. Everyone's allowed one. I mean look at them go. They're just keeping us on our toes, you know? <laughs> they don't always hit it. It Comes at Night wasn't very good. Like, they don't always have to be perfect. All right, finally, let's take a look at the first trailer for the new documentary, Whitney. What does she mean to you? She's the greatest female entertainer of the 20th century. So much soul and so much spirit. There was Lena Horne, there's Dionne Warwick, but if the mantle is to pass to somebody who's got an incredible range of talent, but guts and soul, it will be Whitney Houston, in my opinion. Nobody could touch Whitney as far as singing. They said, Mom, she taught Whitney everything she knew about how to use that voice. You had three places to sing from. Heart, mind, guts. She learned them all. She was simple. 
She became Whitney Houston when it was time for her to get on stage. People think it's so damn easy, and it's not. Don't walk away from me. All of the things coming at her, she just wanted to escape the pressure. I'm actually very, I'm very excited about this film. I mean, the trailer itself as a piece of advertising is not the strongest trailer, certainly by comparison to the very early teaser trailer that came out, which I thought was really, really well done. The, I mean, apart from the fact that it's, you know, uh, a level of access to the story, to Whitney Houston's um, archives and um, to people involved in her life, more access than we've had before. Um, it's pretty much because of the person who's behind the documentary, Kevin McDonald. Um, he's made a bit of a career of late with narrative films like um, The Eagle and State of Play and The Last King of Scotland, all of which are fine, but his documentary films I've always loved. His Oscar-winning documentary One Day in September is amazing. Um, Touching the Void is amazing. But I loved his documentary on Bob Marley. Yes. Um, and I have no interest in reggae music and I don't have no interest in Bob Marley, but I was fascinated and completely arrested by that documentary and the way that he was able to um, – the way that he's able to – offer a new and interesting perspective on someone that is a popular figure. I'm looking forward to seeing how he approaches Whitney with that. Um, and he's also quite rigorous for a person whose um, position in popular culture is as fascinating as Whitney Houston. I feel like that's going to be a massive benefit. And he dedicates time to them. Like Marley was like a three-hour yeah. documentary, I yeah, think, it was from quite memory. Long. Yeah. But what's funny is right after I watched the trailer for this documentary, I went, oh, hang on, this is not the first Whitney documentary to come out since she died. So I went back and watched um, the one that came out last year. It was called Whitney, Can I mm. Be Me or something like that. And these two documentaries about the same woman have completely different narratives, which I found so fascinating. So the one that came out last year, Can I Be Me, focuses on her troubles and her addictions and her marriage and all the things that basically led to her demise and this one celebrates this incredible icon of female performers black performers um just pop performers and these people that hold her on this incredible pedestal and her amazing voice and talent and how she lived her life and I find that very interesting so if I if I had to pick between the two. I still haven't seen the other one. I definitely lean towards this one. Going back to what Daniel said and then touching on what Jess just mentioned, I think that's actually one of the problems with why this particular trailer doesn't work as well as it could. I think it's actually deliberately trying to tug on the heartstrings a bit too much. I think it's trying to force a bit of emotion into the trailer and kind of get people a bit nostalgic. Um, that's one of the, the kind of the issues I had with this trailer. It does give you a really good insight into what the actual documentary itself will be about. And it's got some really great interviews lined up in there. But at the same time, yeah, I don't feel like the trailer itself was structured particularly well. It didn't make me like jump at seeing this. Well, there's a big vote of confidence to the film. It is actually, it's premiering out of competition at Cannes. So, and that's, you know, that's a pretty big vote of confidence towards the kind of quality of the film and also the quality of the people behind it. Um, it's also just like Kevin McDonald's also a British filmmaker. He's not an American filmmaker. So that offers um, a possibility of a different perspective that could be, uh, could be quite illuminating. So, yeah, I'm very excited. I'm not even a particularly big Whitney Houston fan, but I'm quite excited. What I find fascinating is um, timing-wise, this could actually be really interesting because we've just had the incredibleness that was Beachella um, with Beyonce <laughs> being the first black female 
um, headliner at Coachella. Um, but the interesting thing yeah. about it is that we get to see a female artist or just a black artist who gets to be so unapologetically black in her art and in her persona and image. But that's built upon the fact that throughout the 80s and 90s, there were all of these artists that couldn't do that and faced incredible hardships mm. because what they were forced to do or asked to do or couldn't do because of their race. Like you have Whitney Houston and you have Michael Jackson and you see the things that they had to go through, which Beyonce now doesn't or refuses to. And it's just really interesting. Mm. Yeah, I think some of the archive footage in this film is going to be really interesting and very insightful for Australian audiences. You can catch it probably a little bit later this year. And to check out all of those trailers and more, head to youtube.com forward slash make the switch AU. Just wrapping up over in the States is CinemaCon, which is essentially the world's largest cinema trade show, where film studios and cinema owners come together to get some sort of circle jerk situation going over how much money they're all going to make in the coming months. But the exciting part is that with studios hawking all their wares, we get our very first looks at some of the most anticipated films coming down the pipeline. Stars, stunts, share singing ABBA, films we all thought sounded terrible that might actually be good Und vice versa. What even? Wild stuff. So what were all our highlights, kids? Daniel, you go first. <laughs> well, I mean, there were there were two films that I was quite excited to hear talked about at CinemaCon. Um, the first was Joel Edgerton's um, new film, his follow-up to The Gift, um, which is Boy Erased, which is I'm based kidding. on a book about the son of a Baptist preacher who's forced to participate in a gay conver- conversion therapy. Uh, I mean, Joel Edgerton has done, made a real, really killer debut with The Gift. So he obviously has the chops and he's a, uh, you know, has the chops as a writer as well because he's also writing this. And the subject matter is obviously of tremendous interest, um, you know, because of, you know, the great wave of great queer themed films coming out. And the cast, I mean, it's got Nicole Kidman, queen goddess of Once all. again in um, another you know, 90s mum wig. So she loves, I'm so, she loves it. Exactly. <laughs> Joel Edgerton is in it. Russell Crowe is in it. And Lucas Hedges is playing the lead. And Lucas Hedges, as far as I'm concerned, is one of the most exciting actors in the world. Even He was even exciting in th- oh. that Bill Ward's movie. <laughs> um, he's play- but also the fact that there's been a certain degree of care taken in the fact there's actually quite a lot of queer artists involved in the film like... Um, um, Xavier Dolan and Troy Sivan and um, it looks like Joel Edgerton's taking it quite seriously um, so I was excited to hear positive responses to that but really it was all about fucking Suspiria's uh, <laughs> reimagining of Dario Argento's 70s masterpiece and the fact that people were saying the footage was off the fucking yeah, chain were. like people saying people that you know they <laughs> Yeah, like I'm reading through the, like looking through the Twitter comments, like people saying one of the most fucked up things I've ever seen at CinemaCon, uh, incredibly violent and bloody. Uh, Tilda, hello. How can you not mention Tilda? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, like, yeah, but that, that's when you get into like, you know, the fact that it's on top of the fact that it's the director of Call Me By Your Name following up Call Me By Your Name with a, with a horror film with the same core team that helped him create Call Me By Your Name um, based on one of the truly great horror films of the, you know, the 20th century and a cast that, in, cast that includes mm-hmm. Chloe Moritz, mm-hmm. Dakota Johnson, Tilda Swinton, <gasps> like, it's such it's a good just, cast. Like, there's a great description of what the footage is, and it sounds nuts. Yeah. But also mm-hmm. sounds completely in step with what Suspiri is. 
but also different enough to not have to feel like it's going to live in the shadow of um of Argento. So yeah, and the fact that Tilda Swinton is playing the crazy head of a German ballet school who turns out to be a witch. Oh, the role she was. Playing. Oh, it's fucking like, I mean, perfect. Like, I mean, hey, the tweet that I retweeted was that Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria is Black Swan meets The Exorcist in a seventies Berlin Mark Jacobs ad. Yes, I love. That. I think <laughs> not all of us just. <laughs> Climaxed in simultaneous <laughs> ecstasy. So yeah, Suspiria and Boy Erased. Fucking heck yeah, my doodle. Jess, what do you yeah. think? Oh oh oh. Okay, so uh, a film that's been capturing my attention this CinemaCon uh, is A Simple Favor. So it's directed by Paul Feig, who's the guy that gave us Bridesmaids, The Heat, um, and Spy. And if you don't know him from those things, he gave a tour de force performance turn in Sabrina the Teenage Witch as Mr. Fool. <laughs> Um, <laughs> 90s touchstone. Yeah, so he's directed a film. So obviously he's better known uh, for comedies, but this one, while still having a, com- a comedic element, is actually being labelled as a crime mystery thriller starring Blake Lively and Anna Kendrick and also Potty McHot Hot Hot Asian from Crazy Rich Asians, <laughs> uh, Henry Golding, as, oh. Blake, as Blake Lively's husband. Oh, my couple. God. My nips are a tingle. Oh, no, right. So, so that one is just, oh, my God, that's just got me That's got me very excited. Um, and secondly, okay, this one, reading everyone's reactions online, maybe not so excited, but I'm still intrigued, is the remake of Robin Hood. It has an amazing cast in Taron Edgerton, Jamie Foxx, Jamie Thornton, and, oh, my love, Ben Mendelsohn. Once again, playing a villain, which kind of breaks my heart a little bit because he's just, he's so good and he needs to play a good guy. But, um, yeah, no, he's playing villain. Um, so, yeah, so this is like a, it's not modern, modern, but it's the remake of Robin Hood. It's by a guy called Otto Bathurst who's known for TV. He directed like Peaky Blinders and um that episode of Black Mirror for all those who are in the know. So last year we were subjected to Guy Ritchie's King Arthur and I fear that this is sort of in the same vein. It's one of those films that no one asked for but it's going to be cool but it might not necessarily be good and it's kind of uh, breaking my heart that people are not embracing it as much as they can. They are praising Taron and why wouldn't they um, for his charisma and just yummy, yummy oh. looks and he's, he's fucking Taron. Also, he's recently been signed mm. on to play Elton John in his biopic and he's going to be amazing. So it means we might oh theme kiss a man this and I'm very in for podcast that. just took a turn for the lascivious. Oh, and sing. I mean, I wanted to do that gorilla uh, in the movie Sing. <laughs> So, yeah, so, yeah, so um, my picks, everyone look out for um, a simple favour and if you're into that kind of thing, probably. <laughs> All right. So while Jess cleans herself up, Charlie, <clears throat> anything pop out for you? There's not enough time in this podcast for that. Um, <laughs> yes. Yes, definitely. Um, so I am not going to go with uh, kind of raved about film from CinemaCon, but I'm going to go with a bit of a kind of newsier angle. We saw 20th Century Fox's uh, CEO, Stacey Snyder, uh, give a, a reasonably moving speech while she was there. Um, Fox is just about to be completely engulfed by Disney. Um, so the future of their entire company and the people in it are entirely uncertain. They're not really sure where they sit at the moment. And the fact that 
she kind of looked back over the last 85 years of films with Fox and um, kind of what they've done in the way of filmmaking, uh, kind of just reliving some of the some of their biggest films. Um, it was kind of a bit a bit moving, but it's also this weird situation where it's brought up all these suggestions of with Disney taking over and. Fox does create some, it doesn't create great films all the time, but when it does create great films, it definitely does it well. But they do these mid-range films, like not big, not huge budget, not small budget, but just like mid-range films, which we've talked about in the past kind of disappearing. And one that just won the Oscar for Best Picture. Yeah. And then you've also got all these like US R-rated films, which Disney doesn't do. And it's really unsure as to where how they, this is all going to proceed. So it's a, it's kind of an emotional time for them at the moment. Um, that may have been their kind of last ever trade show appearance as as Fox. Very very weird. Yeah, I mean it, it, the big yeah the big question of what's going to happen to Fox Searchlight, I think, is the big thing that hangs over the Fox Disney merger. Because mm. I mean, without Fox Searchlight, like that's a massive section of the independent or the yeah. range film world that disappears, um, and Disney have to make a decision what they're going to do with that. Well, yeah, it is very fascinating. But my pick for the <laughs> let's just shut up about your pick, Charlie. My pick for done. What do you mean? The thing that was most exciting. Surprisingly, was not the car- most of the cast of Ocean's 8 coming together in a coordinated group outfit that they organised via group chat because they're all such good friends. I'm obsessed. And it wasn't the first footage of Steve McQueen's Widows, the Cynthia Erivo, Viola Davis, Carrie Coon starring female heist movie, which I'm also incredibly excited for. No, my pick is Beautiful Boy, which is the new film with Steve Carell and <sighs> Timothy Chalamet. Um, Man of the Earth. Which is getting a lot of Oscars already uh, for little Timmy. Uh, He's just coming off his first Oscar nomination for Call Me By Your Name, where he arguably should have won. Um, but this is a true story adapted from David Sheff's book about his son's meth addiction and how the two of them kind of came through it. And so Steve Carell is playing Timothy Chalamet's dad and Timothy Chalamet couldn't be there in person. So instead he Skyped in and Steve Carell just gushed about his love for the Timothy Chalamet and how every time he sees him he just feels happy and it's just beautiful and I'm so excited for this movie and I'm so excited for Timothy Chalamet to get two Oscar nominations in a row and possibly win this time and just continue to be a bright spark in a dark lonely universe. Also it's directed by, I'm going to butcher his name, Felix Van Groningen (laughs) and it's the One more time for the English Nope, (laughs) just the one Uh, It's his English language debut and he was the director of The Broken Circle Breakdown, which was a a foreign film (laughs) Um, from a few (laughs) years ago um, that was actually, that was nominated for the foreign language film at the Oscars and is actually really beautiful and devastating and really delicately handled and like stunningly emotional. And yeah, the reactions out of CinemaCon were really hugely positive. So that's our wrap on CinemaCon. It may sound a bit inside baseball-y because it's, you know, industry peeping and glad handing with industry people. But we are giant nerds and this is so exciting. So we do urge you to look into the coverage and see if there's anything you're excited about and let us know if we've missed anything that seemed particularly exciting. There was a ginormous fucking butt-ton of content coming out of there over the past week or so. So let us know, kids. 
We have some great giveaways up for grabs this week. First up, we're giving away five copies of The Greatest Showman on Blu-ray. Hugh Jackman leads an all-star cast in this bold and original musical, filled with infectious show-stopping performances that will bring you to your feet time and time again. Inspired by the story of P.T. Barnum and celebrating the birth of show business, the film follows the visionary who rose from nothing to create a mesmerising spectacle. The Tracker is out on Blu-ray for the first time in the world, and we have five copies to give away. It's 1922, somewhere in Australia, when an Indigenous Australian man is accused of murdering a white woman, three white men, the fanatic, the follower and the veteran, are given the mission of capturing him with the help of an experienced Indigenous Australian, The Tracker, played by Indigenous screen legend David Gulpilil. They start their quest in the outback not knowing that their inner wrestling both against and for racism will be more dangerous than the actual hunting for the accused. Chappaquiddick is hitting Australian cinemas soon and we have 10 double passes to give away. The film is a piercing re-examination of the true events surrounding the most difficult seven days of Senator Ted Kennedy's career when he drove off a bridge, ending the life of his passenger Mary Jo Kopechny, a promising political strategist who had worked with his brother Bobby Kennedy's presidential campaign the year prior. To win this and all our great giveaways, head to maketheswitch.com.au forward slash comps now. And before we go, we'd like to offer you some cinematic inspiration with each of us suggesting one film that you should see this week and why. Jess, what have you got on the cards for this week? Okay, I'm following the theme of this week's podcast with an Australian film. Um, This movie draws on my supreme love of the Richard Linklater trilogy, the Before trilogy. Um, So it's an Australian film from 2000 called Better Than Sex. And it stars David Wenham and the magnificent Susie Porter. And it's about, I think it's like two days in the life of two people that essentially hook up for a one-night stand and they just don't part ways the next morning. They kind of find ways to stay in each other's company for the next two days before David Wenham's character has to go back to London. And it's intercut with these um, piece-to-camera confessionals by the other character, the minor characters that we either see a little bit or hear about throughout the film. Talking about relationships with people, talking about sex, talking about love, talking about intimacy, talking about whether or not to everything to spit or swallow or to call the next day. And it's really funny and it's actually really, really beautiful. And it is about relationships and how they can come from nowhere and how they can develop and you know what constitutes intimacy and or you know where to go with the different you know what to say and what not to say in the different people in your lives. And it's just, it's also one of those fabulous dialogue films. It's just essentially just a two hander um, with the only occasional interruption by a third person, but it's essentially just a two hander of these two people navigating this very new and very unorthodox relationship and that they have for these two days. And I think it's fabulous. And it's, um, yeah, called Better Than Sex. Okay, Daniel, what have you got for us this week? Um, I usually tend to go for, you know, earlier classic films because I like to be a, a snob, but I'm actually going to recommend a film that is very recent, as in the last six months recent, um, a film that I had to catch up on that I uh, had re- not at the time at the, seeing it at the cinemas, but have now since and have realized my uh, tremendous mistake in not having seen it at the cinemas. And that is, in fact, the most well-reviewed film in the history of cinema, according to Rotten Tomato. 
and that is the absolutely perfect Paddington 2. <laughs> Chris had gone, has gone on about this film constantly on the podcast, and you know what? He's fucking right. It is literally everything. Obviously, by virtue, I'm also having to recommend Paddington if you haven't seen it. Paddington is wonderful. It is a wonderful film. Paddington 2 is next level. Like, it's funny. It's moving. Like, I burst into tears on many occasions. It is so fucking well directed that it's blinding all the performances are amazing you can see every single actor is having an absolute ball and the fact that the cast of the second film is even more impressive than the first is really a testament to how great the first film is but yeah it's one of the great sequels empire strikes back godfather part two toy story two paddington (laughs) two This film is fucking insane. All right, Chris, you are wrapping up this podcast. What have you got in store for us this week? I, once again, am not going to cheat. I am, I've reformed. Uh, this sinner has gone to church. Here I am once again, torn into pieces. <laughs> Come tonight, can't pretend. My pick this Bless week you, is child. inspired by, like most of my life, inspired by the one, the only, the love of my life, for realsies, Meryl Streep. Um, and it's, I think it's actually one of her most underrated and her best possibly performance. And it's in the form of Postcards from the Edge, the Mike Nichols movie from early nineties, which was written by Carrie Fisher and based on her novel Postcards from the Edge. Um, and it's about the relationship between a struggling drug addict getting her life together while also being a famous actress in Hollywood and her relationship with her much more famous old school kind of musical theatery mother played by Shirley MacLaine. Does that relationship sound familiar anyone? So it's heavily based <laughs> on Carrie Fisher about. and her mother, Debbie Reynolds. Um, but really it's just, it's a fantastic film. The one liners alone are enough reason to see it. It's incredible. Her <laughs> wit is razor sharp and some of the zingers that she gets in i am annoyed that they're in there because they're so perfect and so good and i wish i had come up with them um but like my skirt tore all down instant gratification takes too long Uh, above all else it is just a fucking fantastic Meryl Streep performance. It's loose. It's funny. Her way with Carrie Fisher's dialogue is fantastic. Her way with her co-stars is incredible. It's this wonderful thing of seeing this incredibly alive performer have the perfect amalgamation of all of her like recognizable ticks and tricks in the perfect character for them. You get to hear her sing. And you get to hear her sing. Yes, yes. Some of there are like three incredible musical moments. One of them, she's not even singing but it's just her reactions to the person singing are devastatingly beautiful i love this movie i am obsessed with it and it's my recommendation this week postcard from the edge go check it out it also has a very cute dennis quaid at the beginning of his career but mainly straight and mclean awesome well they are some great suggestions check them out and you can find the links to all the articles that we've talked about on this week's podcast at make the switch.com.au Please subscribe to SwitchCast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to rate us. And stay in touch on Twitter. I'm at Charlie underscore David. Jess? At Miss Jess underscore Switch. Daniel? At Daniel Lemon. And Chris? 
at Chris C. Edwards. Like it, follow it. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Make the Switch AU to stay up to date with all the latest reviews, news, trailers, and giveaways. And you can find all the notes and links to everything we've discussed on this week's podcast, as well as other episodes by visiting switchcast.com.au. On next week's show, we'll get vulgar and violent, or at least more than usual, as (laughs) Deadpool 2 hits cinemas. And I'll take a look at the highly anticipated Tully. Plus, I'll check out the Oscar-nominated On Body and Soul. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you all next week.